Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. Good morning. We've started a new discipleship process at Rockwell Presbyterian Church. We've wrestled with the question over a number of months uh, between the leadership and staff and some of the lay people, what really is the purpose of the church? What is it that we are called to produce? And the answer to that question is we are called to produce disciples. Our focus needs to be on uh, what we are making of ourselves in faithfulness and obedience to, to Jesus Christ. We're rounding out our sermon series which five weeks we've talked about the theological reasons for why we've set up the system that we have. Uh, Community groups are currently starting. We're encouraging you to sign up for one of those. It's places that meet twice per month and draw people together for fellowship and to share a meal and to pray together. 
to build relationships that are necessary to move forward in discipleship. And a little while later, cultivate groups will start in the not-too-distant future. And those are places for three or four people of the same sex to get together and to study God's Word together and to pray and to be bound up in greater intimacy and, uh, you know, kind of almost in a, a team notion of engaging discipleship. Let's run this race together. Let's walk this journey together. And so we're excited for all of that and think that it, it holds great promise for us growing as disciples. And you might say, well, why do we really need those things? Well, here we have a picture of Jesus calling the church to be a place of foot washing. That we would follow in his example and be eager and intentional about washing one another's feet. Are we really that kind of community? I saw my general physician recently uh, for just an annual physical, and he said, uh, we chat, we often compare. Um, he, he thinks being a doctor and caring for patients is a lot like being a pastor. And, um, and watching, you know, kind of seeking to shepherd the flock. Um, but he, he has said that he loves going to the church that he goes to because he, uh, it's very clear that you can believe whatever you want in going to this church. And he got, said to me, uh, you know, I don't want to be offensive, but uh, really I think the bottom line is that the church doesn't have anything to offer anybody. And uh, so we were having a good discussion. And in some ways he was wrong, and, and I won't give you all the details of the conversation, but I thought, you know, in part you're so right. The church has so long ago abandoned its identity and decided to be cultural and impotent and myopic that we have very little to offer to people. And so what would it be to be a community that actually embraces and lives out John 13? And why don't we? Why would we not engage that wholeheartedly? What keeps us from going down that road? I recently listened to a podcast uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. He's got a new one out on NPR. And in one of the, uh, the podcasts in general is taking up the question of why don't good ideas that are very obviously true and right uh, get any traction sometimes, right? So you might have a good idea, it makes a lot of sense, but clearly it's not embraced and it's left by the wayside. And he's asking the question from kind of a sociological perspective, why does that happen? And one of the first examples he takes up is the example of uh, an example that occurs in basketball. And it was uh, in 1974, he looks at one of the greatest NBA games of all time. Wilt Chamberlain is at the height of his career. And he comes out uh, into a game and begins to play with, uh, even for him, un unprecedented uh, clarity and focus and is just nailing shot after shot. And so people are excited at halftime, but it's not long after halftime uh, where he, he comes out in the second half and continues to shoot unbelievably where they start to say, we, we think history may be in reach here. If Chamberlain stays on his current uh, path of shooting at the rate that he's shooting, he has, we, we may be watching the first game in which an NBA player scores 100 points in a single game. And Chamberlain went on to do that, right? Even though it's been done since, I think, he was the first to do it. Now, one of the surprising aspects of Chamberlain doing that is uh, while he was a brilliant player on the court, he was a terrible free throw shooter. A horrible percentage from the foul line. Uh, not that dissimilar from Shaquille O'Neal in more recent uh, memory, right? The Shaq attack. Go ahead and foul Shaq because he's going to miss it right, from the free throw line. Well, Chamberlain uh, shot brilliantly that day from the free throw line. Why? 
Well, he adopted a new technique that was being piloted and argued for at the time by certain players. And the technique was this. You take the ball and you bend over and put it between your knees and you swing a few times and you shoot underhanded. In other words, for that game, Wilt Chamberlain shot the granny shot for all of his free throws. Now, to make a long story short, there is no question that the granny shot is vastly superior to the over-the-head free throw, right? It's been studied up and down, and they're uh, basically, if, if you have kind of a kinesthetic person explain it to you, they say essentially this, uh, the granny shot is mechanically much simpler, and many fewer things can go wrong than the over-the-head foul shot. You have to remember much less. So every player that's employed the granny shot, right, actually practice it and employed it in a game, their percentages have shot wildly upward so that they're a much improved player. Uh, Gladwell went on to argue that LeBron James, if he had used the granny shot, would have scored more than 1,000 additional points during his career uh, because he was, again, a so-so free throw shooter. So Gladwell's saying there's no question that the granny shot is a better shot in basketball from the free throw line. Why doesn't anybody do it? There's one player currently in the NBA who does it. He's from Africa. And they start asking the players, like, this worked so well for you in some cases. Some of you have tried this. Why don't you do it? And basically, they all said the same thing. It looks silly. I don't, I'm going to get made fun of in the locker room, right? It says, I don't look very masculine doing a granny shot. And so even though it's a great and brilliant idea, even though there's no question about the success of that idea, all of them are jettisoning the idea and choosing to be lower-performing players so that they can preserve the image that they want to preserve. We ask ourselves, why aren't we a feet-washing community? Perhaps we're jettisoning the really good idea that makes a lot of sense so that we can preserve our images. At least this seems to be what's happening for Peter, at least to some extent, as uh, we begin to look at our passage Jesus knows that his time is at hand. If you look at uh, verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world. He loved them in the end. Now, just for a moment, if you consider, what would it have been like for Jesus to be in this moment? I've, I've walked my road. I've had three years of, of very intense ministry, exhausting ministry. I've been obedient completely to the Father in everything, and I'm about to go to the cross. Now, don't think about Jesus for a minute. Just think if you are in that place and you know you're headed to the cross and it's one of your last nights, what are you going to do? Let's say, bring in the wine. Because right? I'm going to take a little break and I want to make sure that I am severely inebriated as I go to the cross. I think that's a very human response. That would be my response. In fact, interestingly, if you study the nights of the 9-11 martyrs, martyrs, attackers, right? Their nights before they actually boarded the planes uh, were just that, booze and women. This is what I've earned, and I'm going to take a break. Now, the reason I point that up to you is this. I find this passage so remarkable because God, in the incarnation, his revelation, he says, we're at this moment where he's almost done. He knows his time is limited with his disciples. And what does he choose to do? He says, I'm going to, I'm not only going to love you, but I'm going to give you a profound demonstration of love. I'm going to take the form of a slave. I'm taking off my robe. I'm donning myself in a towel, which was the typical dress of a slave. And I'm going to do a slave's work. I'm going to wash your feet. That even in this 11th hour, I want you to understand who I am. Do you want to know the Father, the creator of the universe? 
he's a slave who takes a towel and expresses love in serving his disciples, right? And ultimately, this is, will pale in comparison to him giving his life up on the cross. But is that not remarkable? That in the very end of this road, this limited time, you think maybe Jesus just catch your breath. He says, no, I'm going to wash your feet and this will be an example to you that you are called to follow. What remarkable love. What re- incredible selflessness. Something that's very hard to get. And in fact, I think it's something that makes us very uncomfortable. Right? Is that really the God that we want? You know, if, if I'm thinking about God, and most of the history of the world would bear this out, and I want a God, I want Thor, right? Strong and powerful and mighty and has a cool hammer. And he destroys everything, right? No, he always wins. And it's, it's very clean. And so to, to follow in the footsteps of Thor, I get to be strong and crush enemies and make people pay for the ways they've hurt me. That's the story of divinity in much of the world. But here, the story of the one true God who reveals himself in flesh says, no, my character is is to love and to serve. And this is what you're called to be in the world. Uh, I think that's unsettling to us. I think that's a hard call. I think it has great benefit and great beauty, right? But even we see Peter not really getting it. Peter's going to misunderstand Jesus' call in two significant ways that we have to encounter and consider because it's the same way that we mistake Jesus' call and don't understand this. What's Peter's first response? Lord, you will never wash my feet. You know, you just, I don't know about you, but I have this um, warm place in my heart for Peter because he always makes me feel better. Because I think I wouldn't have said that Right? Only Peter would have, would have done that. Even after, right, Jesus is very intentionally doing something very, you've got to believe that most of the disciples are sitting there thinking, okay, this is pretty outstanding that Jesus is doing this. And Peter obviously isn't comfortable. And even after Jesus explains to him, listen, you're not going to understand this now, but you'll understand it later. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you don't get this, and this makes you uncomfortable, but this is what I'm doing. Uh, Peter still won't get on board. He says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. No obedience, simply arrogance. You wonder what's going on in Peter's head. And the text doesn't tell us explicitly, right? but you can imagine Peter is thinking, well, I would much rather wash your feet than have you wash mine. That seems like a much more normal and regular affair. I would be more comfortable with that. Let's go down that road. But I, you, washing my feet, man, that, that is humbling and vulnerable, and I don't really want to engage in that, uh, in that fashion. And now, there are two things going on which you have to keep in mind. Otherwise, the passage is a little bit tricky. There's a level of meaning which is the metaphor of cleanliness. And so you have Jesus and the story kind of playing back between the nature of cleaning the feet which is simply a metaphor for being clean, right? Now, where Jesus wants to get is this is an example of love and service to one another. That's what they're being called to. But Peter is kind of sidetracking the discussion because of his lack of understanding. He is reluctant to allow Jesus to clean him. He doesn't want to be washed by him. That's something we struggle with as well. 
it's very humbling, right? To really be cleaned by Jesus, you're admitting several, or at least two things. You're admitting, I'm very dirty. And you're admitting that I am incapable of cleaning myself. Those aren't things that we like to admit to ourselves in our heart. Take that posture of humility. For Peter to say, yes, I'm, I'm really, I'm so dirty that I cannot possibly handle the dirt, the sin that is within me. Please wash me. Because then you're kind of putting it out there how, how dirty you are. We prefer often to protect ourselves with, with image. I'm going to present to you something that I want you to see. That's how I want you to understand me, and I'm far more comfortable with you understanding me through that lens of an image that I present. Jennifer and Charlotte were uh, visiting the Rustic Warehouse uh, yesterday. And if you're not familiar, the Rustic Warehouse is basically an antique shop that's on 205 and has lots of cute little sections to decorate your home. And Jennifer said to Charlotte, you know, uh, I bet Chip and Jojo would like this place. Now, Chip and Jojo, if you're not familiar, are they run a, a home improvement show and they recreate homes beautifully for pennies. It's a ridiculous show. And ooh, I struck a nerve there. Goodness. Uh, anyway, the, price, the, the numbers are ridiculous. But I digress. That's not the point. I shouldn't have said it. Um, and so uh, Jennifer was thinking, this is kind of like Magnolia and Waco, where they're headquartered. Chip and Jojo would like this. And uh, Charlotte made an astute comment. She said, well, maybe. We don't really know them. So, you know, we don't know. You know, they portray a certain image of, of, on TV, but they may not have a great marriage. And their kids may not be that well off. And you know what? I bet their kids are annoyed at how busy they are. And my heart, and hearing that story, swelled with pride. Right? Because she's exactly right. You are presented a very particular image that is intended to make you love, fall in love with Chip and Jojo on uh, their show. Right? It's not reality. Who know, you don't know anything about what goes on in their home or their relationship or their actual relationship to their kids. Right? And yet we would so often pre- prefer to put forth that kind of image for ourselves rather than to truly uh, be known for who we are. And of course, this is particularly dangerous. When Jesus comes to wash our feet, we would prefer right, to say, to put forth an image and say, like Peter, no, you shall never wash my feet. What, you know, from one perspective, what arrogance. What profound, to say to the Lord, the teacher, the master, no, you don't need to do this. What's, Peter, are you not that dirty? Is Jesus not the one who needs to cleanse you? You think you are putting forth a righteousness. You think that you are articulating that you understand better than everyone present that you should be the one washing Jesus' feet rather than the other way around. And you've got it completely wrong. Because if you're unwilling to be washed by the Master, you'll never be clean, which is exactly what Jesus says to him. This has been best captured, in my opinion, in literature and the story of Eustace, which is one of my favorite places in all of the writings of C.S. Lewis. Now, boys and girls, probably some of you know this story. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it happens in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. And you've got the, uh, the Henri cousin of the Pevensies, who is Eustace Scrub. And he's kind of an obnoxious boy. And uh, at one point, the boat, the Dawn Treader, lands at an island, and Eustace Scrub discovers a great hoard of treasure. 
He's very excited. He starts to imagine, I will have uh, friends and power and influence given all of the wealth that is located here. And he slips on a golden band around his arm and he falls asleep dreaming of everything that he's going to be able to do. Now, when Eustace has awoken, something has changed. What's different, boys and girls? He's turned into a dragon. Eustace becomes what his heart already is, right? A lover of money, a monster of greed. Now, the problem is that golden band that he put on as a boy fit quite nicely, but now it's digging into his flesh and it hurts a great deal. And he doesn't know how to get it off. And he starts to be really scared. I'm a dragon and I can't talk anymore to humans and this isn't fun at all. And I don't like the path that I've taken. Eventually, he's, he's lamenting that soreness and he wants to get into a lake to soothe uh, the pain. And Aslan shows up. Aslan says, well, that lake, it's not going to work, right? You actually have to undress first before you, you get into the water to be made clean. And Eustace says, well, undress. I'm a dragon. I'm not wearing any clothes. He says, oh, well, snakes have skins that they shed and there's new skin underneath. So this must be the case. So he takes his dragon claws and begins to cut away his, his own skin and take it off only to find more skin underneath. And he tries this three times, but to no avail. There's just more and more dragon skin underneath. And Aslan eventually says, no, that's not going to work. You need to let me undress you. And this is how Lewis describes Eustace's experience. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the three other times. It's a great line. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. Then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit... uh, after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. What a stunning picture of what it means to be washed by Jesus. Eustace thinks that he can do that himself. And he proceeds thinking, I'm really wounding myself, trying to make myself clean, when in reality, after Aslan cleans him, he realizes, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't doing much at all, and it wasn't hurting at all. And what Aslan did hurt, but it made me new. It was the real removal of the old self. And it was the real recreation of the individual in the image of Christ. Which is what Jesus is offering, but Peter, he's not comfortable with that. He's like Eustace, I'll do this. And it raises the question to you, are you willing to be clean by Jesus? Truly clean, not in the way that you say yes, of course. But in the way that you would truly submit to him and allow him to remove the most scaly aspects of your life. 
we might hope that Peter at this point would get it. That he would say, oh, okay, here are my feet. But he doesn't do that at all. In fact, uh, Peter, being the kind of pendulum that he is, he swings fully to the other side and expresses his second misunderstanding. The first is, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. He must be washed by Jesus in order to be clean. But now he says, oh, if this is that, you have to wash me in order to be clean? Okay, well then my head and my hands also. I'm going to go all in. Let's not stop with the feet. Peter's saying, okay, now that I know what needs to be done, I'm going to give you 110%. Holiness involves reading your word. I'm going to read 30 chapters a day. Holiness involves serving the church. For every six-hour workday, I'm going to stay eight hours. This type of attitude, which is all about doing. I'm going to accomplish what the assignment is. You know, Peter, in essence, because he's adding to what Jesus has prescribed for his cleaning, is, in a sense, adding to the cross, which we love to do in the sense that we might take credit for going above and beyond. Peter, in the first instance, says, I know better than all of you. I'm not going to let Jesus wash my feet. I'll wash his feet. And then, on the other side, he says the same thing. I know better than all of you. If my feet need to be clean, if Jesus needs to do this, I'm going to let him wash all of me. In each case, he puts himself a little bit ahead of the others or seeks to. But we have to realize that even that notion of doing, I'll do more, I will add, I will, I will go the extra distance, is a way of keeping Jesus at arm's length. It's a way of keeping our distance because it's all about doing rather than relationship. If, uh, if you have not seen uh, the Lego Batman movie, you should. Because it is, it's outstanding in, in many different ways. And it is, is rather uh, deep in uh, certain regards. But it, it, um, as it tells from the perspective of the movie, it looks at, at, at Batman as a very broken figure uh, who has a very difficult time with relationships. So uh, in the beginning, the Joker is hijacking a plane to blow up Gotham. And uh, everyone is like, well, you're not going to be successful because Batman always stops you. And the Joker's very frustrated, but indeed the story proceeds in the first part of the movie that basically every villain that Batman has ever faced comes out in force and Batman beats them all and uh, saves Gotham, saves the world. And he goes home and is at uh, Wayne Manor and he's looking at a picture of his parents. Now, um, if you remember the Batman backstory, right, as a boy, Bruce Wayne goes to the cinema with his parents who are both shot and killed by a criminal, uh, hence starting the life of Bruce Wayne that would become Batman. So Batman comes home. He's looking at a picture of his parents, right? Uh, you know, in a sense, mourning this loss. And he says to the picture, he says, uh, Mom and Dad, I saved the world again today. I wish you could have seen it. Well, Alfred, the butler, has snuck up uh, behind him and says, Oh, Master Bruce, may we, may we talk about your real fears now? And, uh, and, of course, Batman replies, I don't have any fears. Uh, Alfred, what are you talking about? And uh, he goes, no, you do. Let's talk about your fears. And, and so Batman goes, uh, snakes? And Alfred says, no, not snakes. And Batman goes, clowns? And Alfred says, no, not clowns. And uh, Batman says, oh, snake clowns. I've never had that idea before. But now, Alfred, you've given it to me, and I'm terrified of snake clowns. And Alfred says, no, 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 Master Bruce, can we talk about that you are afraid of having any relationships 
for fear of losing them out of the fear that you lost that comes as a result of losing your parents. And Batman goes, uh, I don't have any fear and I'll prove it. And he jumps into an ab workout and push-ups which says, look how strong I am. I don't have any fear, right? It's a dem- I'm going to do and put forward my strength, my image of strength, rather than actually engage the fear that grips my heart and drives me uh, to be uh, this individual. Not somewhat comical picture of something, though, we often experience, right? as we might very, be very prone to do to even prevent relationship. Right? I see this a lot in marriage. I've seen it in, in myself in my own marriage. Right? You might have a wife come to husband and say, you know, I'd really like to experience more of you. I'd like for us to, to connect. And of course, me as man, I'm like, oh, I, I feel like we're very connected. I'm not sure what the problem is. And then I say, you know, we've, uh, I've taken care of the, the yard and I've uh, taken care of the cars and the kids have been tucked in every night this week and I cleaned up the kitchen three times and I've met both my 60-minute uh, windows of talking to you. I don't understand how you could possibly think that we're not connected, right? And so, and the wife says, no, uh, I, I, I'm talking about wanting you, not what you do. And there's a world of difference, Right? In, in some ways, I'm preventing relationship or preventing being known by making sure I'm doing all of the right things. And this is Peter. I would prefer not to have you wash me, Jesus. I will, okay, you say it's necessary. I'll go above and beyond. Right? But what Peter's doing is avoiding actually being known in the moment and being cleansed fully by Jesus. He just misunderstands. It's a misunderstanding that we, that we have much in common with. And so what are we called to this morning? To be washed by Jesus and to wash one another's feet. This is why we've started the groups that we have. To provide venues in which we can be washed by Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't show up in person, so to speak, to wash your feet anymore. But he does show up in person in other people, offering that you be washed. And he does call you to wash other people's feet. So we've started the groups that there would be opportunities for us to invest in one another and to actually be a community that offers something to the world. When I was in uh, seminary, I, I did a job a lot like Ricky does. I, was a, um, I ran a youth program that was actually shared between two Presbyterian churches that were about oh, three miles from each other in the same neighborhood. And uh, one day I decided, reading John 13, we would have a foot washing of the youth. I thought, this is really good. I am, I am a gifted pastor, or about to be. And we will demonstrate our humility and love and service by washing the students' feet. And so I talked to the leadership. We agreed upon it. We showed up. We read John 13 and said, okay, we're going to sit in silence and we're going to wash your feet. Now, uh, it was great. The kids were, were dumbfounded, and you could hear a pin drop. They were incredibly uncomfortable uh, with us doing that. Uh, but we closed, and we started to talk about it. And so one of the students said, okay, well, I'm, I'm li- listening to what you say, and I'm going to come and wash your feet. I said, well, no, that's not really the point of the lesson. You don't need to come do that. You see, I had at the time that ugly nail fungus. And I thought, 
I am not taking off my shoes in front of these youth because I will never hear the end of it, and uh, that's embarrassing. So, no. Uh, Well done, young student. Yes, clearly you've understood the lesson. Now please sit down and be quiet. You know, I kind of, right? But what did I do? I was an utter failure in leadership, utter failure to understand anything that I was trying to communicate to them. Because I prevented him from being faithful in what he was called to, and I prevented myself from receiving, you know, potentially the grace of Christ. You know, the question you, you should ask, and we can ask, if, if I'm that reluctant uh, to show my feet, right, and, and that intent on preserving a certain image, how reluctant am I to show you my sin? That's much uglier than anything that's going on with my feet. And so Jesus invites us to be free. He invites us to come to a place of transparency where we serve one another in uh, both in the reality of feet washing but in this, this metaphor of feet washing that we would love one another to the extent that we wouldn't be surprised by sin, right? but that we would love one another and support one another in the journey of discipleship. And these are what we hope our groups to be. Uh, so we invite you uh, to participate in them, to be washed by Jesus and also have the opportunity to wash. Let's pray. Father, we are... Uh, dumbfounded in many ways that in taking on flesh and coming to the cross you would also take the posture of a slave and wash the disciples' feet. We marvel at your love and your humility and realize that we are so selfish and so proud. Would you forgive us? Would you meet us at this table and nourish us for we desperately need you. Uh, We will never get beyond our pride and our selfishness unless we are washed by you and unless we are faithful in washing one another's feet. Would you clean us? Would you remove our sin? Would you make our hearts soft? Um, Would you make us new? We thank you for the gift that you give us here. And we look forward uh, to celebrating it and to being nourished by you. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.